This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 58 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, we assess the anxiety about sending children back to school and media reports that the coronavirus may now be airborne. We revisit with two of our medical experts, forthright epidemiologist Dr. Joe Barnes, who sees a bright side for the nation after the very hard road ahead, and Stellenbosch University professor Andreas Diakon, who updates us on the BCG trial for many a great hope in the fight against the coronavirus. We'll also get some insights from one of the first South Africans to contract the virus, old mutual executive Andrew McPherson, and we'll hear from the Outurance chief executive why his company has broken with the industry norm and is actually paying up on business interruption claims. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. In today's COVID-19 headline, South Africa's confirmed infection curve remains on an upward trajectory, with Tuesday's new cases surpassing 10,000 for the second time and taking the total to over 215,000. Daily deaths hit a fresh high of 192 on Tuesday. That puts the country's total mortalities at over 3,500. Globally, infections are setting new records daily, but... With over 12 million confirmed, the good news is that deaths remain between 4,000 and 5,000 a day, and that's significantly down on the 7 to 8,000 daily mortalities in April. The rising South African numbers have resulted in the country continuing to climb the international rankings, with South Africa now reporting the seventh highest new daily deaths and fourth largest new daily infections. On total mortalities, however, South Africa's 3,502 puts it well behind the hardest-hit countries at position 23. The USA, with 134,000 deaths, and Brazil at 67,000, together account for 36% of all mortalities worldwide. Western Cape Premier Alan Windy has become the highest-profile South African politician to test positive thus far for COVID-19. He's 55 years old and a type 2 diabetic, which puts him in a high-risk category. Wendy says he will self-isolate, but he won't stop working. Uh, I got the news today that I have tested positive for COVID-19, so I will be isolating myself for the next 14 days. Uh, I have done this before. This will now be the third time that I've gone into isolation during this pandemic. Uh, and again, I will continue to manage and run things from home using technology. I will continue to chair the cabinets, uh, meet the president and the PCC this week, uh, make sure that we continue running things as is the new norm today. I experienced some flu-like symptoms over the weekend, uh, isolated myself, went for a test on Monday, have just received the results at being positive. Uh, but also just a side note that uh, I am a type 2 diabetic, which means 
that I must also be extra vigilant. And it's the message that we send to everybody uh, in this province. When you have a comorbidity, please, you must be extra vigilant uh, during this time, and specifically diabetics. Thank you very much. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Dr. Ron Whelan is the Chief Commercial Officer at Discovery Health. Ron, you've got young children. Are you feeling a bit anxious about back to school? Yeah, I do have young children. Thank you for asking, Alec. You have an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. We are in the throes of primary school still. They went back to school this week after a long period of lockdown and homeschooling. And it was quite a big debate for us here whether we were going to send them back to school or not, particularly in the rising number of infections in Gauteng and across the country. Certainly a concerning time for us as a community, as a province and as a country. I think at the end of the day, the debate is between the overall development. So they were certainly coping fine from a homeschooling front, but from a social cohesion front and from a social development front, we did feel like they were starting to feel quite isolated. So we debated long and hard on this. Fortunately, the school has put all of the requisite preventive mechanisms in place. So temperature screening on entry into the school, strict social distancing, They've obviously got all of the hygiene protocols in place and keeping us well informed. If there's ever a positive case here, whether it's amongst a teacher or a student, we are alerted to those and we're able to react quickly. And we'll monitor the situation closely. I think on balance as a clinician, there's a certain clinical risk, but there's also a social risk for our kids. And we've taken the decision to get them back into action. I think importantly for everyone on this call is it's, it's a very personal decision. And at the end of the day, you're not going to make the wrong decision as a parent. Yes, I want you to rest assured, whichever decision you make is the right decision. If you decide to keep your kids at home, that's the right decision. If you decide to send them to school, that's the right decision. You know, fortunately, the schools have done everything possible to protect our kids. And I'm certainly feeling reasonably assured and confident that they'll be fine. And from a clinical perspective, we all know that kids tend to get a mild infection. Most of them yeah, end up yeah, asymptomatic. Most of them they have a very, very good outcome. That asymptomatic part, though, isn't that the thing that should be concerning us? Because if the kids do pick up the virus, we wouldn't really know if they're asymptomatic, yet they can spread it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the big debate at the moment, Alex, is this asymptomatic debate. And certainly our actuaries are debating hard about asymptomatic. In fact, over the last three or four days, we've seen four or five different studies that come out globally with asymptomatic rates ranging anywhere between 42.5% and 74%. There's a significant asymptomatic rate. The important thing around your transmission in regards to asymptomatic is all we're trying to do at the moment is remember the worst outcomes are in people over the age of 60, people with chronic conditions, namely diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterolemia, and so on and so forth. So what we've got to do is wrap that segment of the population in cotton wool. So when you take our example, for instance, we are keeping away from my parents, my kids, your grandparents, you're the same way for my wife. And yes, so long as our kids don't come into contact with any high-risk population, that's the protections that we've put in place. And then obviously the probability of any of our kids do happen to have an asymptomatic infection. There is a chance we either get it or we don't get it. Um, but yeah, the most important thing is to protect high-risk populations. Ron, what about this new debate that has surfaced in the international media about airborne or that COVID-19 now can be transmitted through the air? This is an interesting debate, Alec. It's popped up a few times over the last year, three or four months. So I would hardly call it a new debate. It seems to rear its head every so often. The reality is the science hasn't changed fundamentally around this. 
The science concurs that there is aerosolization of micro droplets. And what that means in plain English is that these small respiratory droplets can linger in the air for longer periods of time. And certainly in high concentration environments. So if you're in a hospital, for instance, and you're on a ventilator and there are many COVID patients in a particular ICU, that would be an environment where you would get lots of these little micro droplets in the air and they would stay there for a longer period of time. On the other end of the spectrum, if you've got a well-ventilated room or you're outside, these micro droplets would still be in the air, but they would spread out very, very fast and become much more dilute very, very quickly. So these little micro droplets, and obviously it's all a matter of probability. The better ventilated it is, the more diluted it is, the further you're away from the source of the contamination, the less risk you have of getting infected. So yeah, we try and draw these binary and black and white lines mm. around as one and a half meters or two meters. The reality is it's never one and a half or two meters, it's degrees of probability. And the premise around this, and I was saying to our team earlier on today, is whichever way the science turns, the messaging remains the same. Social distance, keep as far apart as possible. Wear a mask to prevent from getting infected and passing on infection. And avoid close environments, small rooms, unventilated rooms. Those messages stay the same no matter which way you look at the science. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. One of the most popular of our podcasts of the past month was with Dr. Joe Barnes from Stellenbosch University, an epidemiologist. The people who are not very popular, that's part of going in there and shaking things up. But also at the moment, we've got lots of economists who are saying the epidemiologists made huge mistakes by overestimating the impact of this coronavirus. I'm sure you must be thrown that many times. How do you respond to that kind of a criticism? You know, when I started out university, I did a degree in mathematics. And we used to say that economists were designed to make the weather forecasters look good. So <laughs> I, I could have thought, <laughs> let's start off there. <laughs> Number one, I don't think anybody, economist, any kind of scientist, epidemiologist would have been able to do any better given the data that were available to us at the beginning of the outbreak. In fact, before the outbreak even started in South Africa, we learn as we go along about the many, many versions and varieties of scenarios that this virus can present us with. And the geographical differences around the world. So I don't blame the epidemiologists. Unfortunately, disease data are not like market-related information. It's got a much, much larger error margin around anything. And if anything, it's usually an undercount. Well, the one good thing in South Africa is that the published mortality rate is very low relative to other parts of the world. Have you any thoughts on why this would be so? I have a feeling that part of that mortality rate is an undercount. I do have a feeling that in more rural areas, in areas where the, the hospitals are completely falling apart and struggling, not all of them are certified. I do know we have a desperate situation with the testing. So why would you test a dead person to make sure that there wasn't COVID on board because they don't even have enough tests for the, for the living? The National Health Laboratory Service is just about doing 
about half, if not less, than what the private sector's load is carried at the moment. So, yes, but the other factor in there, and I really take my hat off to them wherever they possibly can, is we still have a very sophisticated top end of the health services. And that's not only private. There are some fantastic individuals serving, working their fingers to the bone, inhumane hours to try and save people. But we also have gotten better at saving lives. As we learned more, we managed to pull many of them through. But Alec, I'm worried about that in a way because we are totally unprepared for the large number of people who will come out of this alive but impaired. Some will be impaired. This virus attacks people's nervous systems. Some of them come out of there with a permanent, what they call a brain fog. They can't remember. They're poorly orientated. They fall over at the least. They have very poor balance. Some recover. Others simply don't. Others have had really serious cardiovascular damage. Some have had kidney damage and damage to the gut. A number of people will come out of there certainly not really able to function on their own again. And where will we care for them? Even before we went into this crisis, we have very poor care for the elderly and the impaired. It's now going to get worse. And I don't hear a word about that anywhere. Nobody's thought that far. I certainly haven't heard that being raised in conversation. And perhaps... It's because we are so early into this pandemic that we haven't really looked beyond what's going to occur then. But is there evidence for this then, that that those who who do get COVID-19? It comes from overseas, a lot of places. People have said, uh, also many people are so extremely tired that it's going to take them six months or more because it has affected the blood and circulation and, as I say, the neurological integrity of the brain and so on. It's worse than like a yuppie flu, if I can put it like that. And they are not able to function. And now your uh, listeners and readers would be very interested to know or think about the massive impact on the economy if all of these people are withdrawn from what they had done before. If it takes them six months, even at least they recover. But what about the percentage? And we don't know how much percentage who are permanently impaired. Also think about the oxygen that brain had, who needed oxygen support, and some of that damage is irreversible. So just to take a nod to the economists who are probably now starting to get nervous again, we are still in the dark when it comes to how much damage will it do across a population. But we're doing our best. This is probably... The biggest wake-up call I've ever seen across the globe for not pinching off money around every corner for health services because it's going to bite you, and it has. It has bitten us. We're keeping track of the numbers of this one far, far better than anything else we've ever done before. Is there any bright light somewhere, any bit of positivity you can share? Yes. Yes, I do think that there are a lot of very arrogant, very opinionated people who are starting to learn things that they wouldn't have admitted before. Now, there's a damnable thing called saving face. 
They wouldn't admit it. I don't care about them admitting it or not as long as they start learning the lessons. And I do think, I do think South Africa is in a better situation than, for instance, Brazil. Or, for that matter, the U.S. Yes, the scenario is, is grabbing us by the throat at the moment, but I promise you, South Africa will survive. And hopefully not in the shape that is in now. As long as we keep our government from making control councils and having two sets of power in all sorts of places, we now have a town council and a control council, and some of the people are sitting on both, and when it suits them, they chuck it over here, and when it doesn't suit them, they talk from, from that side of their mouth. That is nonsensical. That center cannot hold. But I have huge trust in South Africans. They are the most practical people. You don't sell them a lemon for a long time. So, yes, I think, <laughs> I think we would be able to get through here. I'm just mourning the hard road that it's going to take to go there. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. In late April, we had a fascinating discussion with Professor Andreas Diakon from Stellenbosch University about BCG and the trial of to see whether this vaccine that we all get in South Africa as babies is going to shield us in any way. Prof, good to have you on the podcast again. It's a few months later. Perhaps you can update us. Has the trial kicked off? Yes, the trial has kicked off. Thanks for asking that. Usually the, the buzz in the press disappears very quickly once the activity has started, but you are following up and I'm really appreciative of that. So far, we have 570 participants that have had this vaccination, either with BCG or with placebo. And we've also started seeing events happening. So far, we've just about 120 recorded events, of whom I think five were people that actually had to go to hospital and a few others were quite serious. Now, at this point, I have to tell you that because it's so-called blinded study, I do not know if the people that had these bad outcomes that we want to protect them from had the placebo vaccine or not. So this is, of course, not very informative for your audience, but you're looking live into a clinical trial and that's how it is. But that's interesting. So more than 500 people are part of the trial. These are all health workers, if I recall. These people are all working in hospitals. We have observed that not only the doctors and the nurses actually are exposed, it's just as much the people in the laboratories, the people running with materials in the hospital, even the kitchen staff. They have all been shown to actually have high infection rates, you know, compared to non-healthcare workers just because they work in that environment where the virus is frequently around. I recall in our last conversation, you said that because of the urgency of fighting COVID-19, that you'll be trying to get the insights as soon as possible. This is complicated. We have a, a very efficient system that my co-workers here have set up beautifully, is that all these 116 events that we have already recorded are within a very short time, a day or two, they are on the table of a statistician that actually sits in Sweden. And that statistician is monitoring 
the data continuously. So that statistician knows who was vaccinated with what. And periodically, they do a formal analysis of the accumulated data and submit that to an independent committee that we call a data safety monitoring board. There are four South African experts on this and two non-South African experts, all very experienced clinicians, researchers, statisticians that work in the field of public health, infectious disease, tuberculosis. And they will inform us if there is a signal strong enough that we can stop the study, that we can say BCG should now be offered to everyone who could have participated in this study and fits these criteria. We will know from them. They will approach us and say, you should consider stopping this trial and making the result public. Until then, I have no further information to give. It's not very glamorous, you know, to be the the main investigator of such a study if it's blinded because I'm the last person that's going to know, but I will know one day. And they're not giving you any inkling of when they would be able to inform you? No, they are strongly encouraged not to do this. Now, imagine we know who has been vaccinated with what. Obviously, my people all believe that we are doing something good and they will subconsciously then start rating events in these patients according to what they know they were vaccinated with. You know, so everybody who had a placebo will be rated higher <laughs> in the symptom scores and everybody that had the BCG will be asked, but are you sure this was really so bad? We hope to accumulate a bit more funding so that we can expand the numbers. Currently, we have enough money for a thousand. And our sister science at the University of Cape Town is, is currently doing the numbers from about 600 to 1,000, but we would really like to continue to 2,000 to be sure that we will uh, be able to show the effect of BCG vaccination. Who would help you to fund? Where would you seek the resources from? You know, obviously, COVID-19 is a, is a global epidemic and lots of people are tasting a lot of good ideas out there and, and we, we are just one of them. We would hope that some donors like the, the government or or other charitable organizations, perhaps the WHO, that someone would top up these numbers because, you know, the, the most expensive thing is to actually get it started. And we have been funded by the European Union for the first 1,000 participants and the startup plus private funders have helped us. Private hospital chain has actually quite significantly assisted us in getting both the healthcare workers recruited and the trial funded. So this is a so-called, you can call it a spontaneous private-public partnership where everyone donates a little bit to it, to its success. If we could just stop it up a little more, it would probably make the power of the trial to have an outcome higher. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. It was back in early March that we spoke with Andrew McPherson, who is an executive with Old Mutual, uh, when he tested positive for COVID-19. Andrew, at the time, you were, well, very much an outlier in a South African sense. I remember you picked it up on an overseas trip. How long did it take for the virus to work out of your system? Yeah, I, said, I mean, it's a good question. I, sometimes I don't know if the virus is out of my system because I, I still can't smell. I mean, you know, people say, you know, they get, they get tired and stuff. So sometimes I feel a bit tired, but I think it takes a while. So it, took, it was a good 20 days before I tested negative. So the 19th day, I was still positive, and 20th day, I was negative. Just say that um, again. You still can't smell. Mm, yeah, yeah. So I still can't smell. You know, it was interesting. I had an interview today with Dr. Joe Barnes, who was saying that we don't yet understand 
the longer-term impact of of this COVID-19. And she said there's some very serious after-effects that are coming from elsewhere in the world. So you're still relatively young. I mean, how old are you? 45. So, look, I agree with that. But, you know, it's not unique. This is what I, I throw with sometimes. Is this is not unique. You know, in 1968, there was the Hong Kong flu, which I think got to South Africa in about 74. And my mother actually contracted when she was pregnant with me, and she still got a hearing problem from that virus. How interesting. Um, yeah, so these viruses do have effects like this. You know, that's so important because many people are of the impression that, oh, well, I'm going to get it and then I'll shake it off and no harm done. But in fact, mm. uh, we don't really understand. And your instance is now showing that because you're healthy, you're 45. It's, mm. There's no reason why you should have after effects. I don't know. Look, I've, I'm asthmatic, but I've had bad sinuses for my whole life. So maybe that's got something to do with it. But I have heard that people, there's actually a self-help group somewhere that on, uh, on people who've you kind of haven't got their smell back. So it's, it's, it sounds quite common. Other influences? No, pretty much that's it. Otherwise, everything's back to normal. So what happens now that you've, you've had the virus? Presumably, you're immune to getting it again. This is one irritating thing is no one wants to stick their neck out and say that. But based on science and based on the way the body reacts to a virus, your body produces antibodies those antibodies circulate your body and attack cells with the virus in it and they kill cells. And so the cell never, be, this, the virus never be, replicates within your body. They've done a drive recently to donate plasma. So I went to donate plasma and they checked my body. I've got the antibodies. So therefore, for a period of time, while the antibodies are in my blood, I shouldn't contract the virus again and I shouldn't be able to infect anyone again. So do you walk around as per normal, no lockdown for you? No, I don't because I'm trying to encourage like responsible behavior as well. So, you know, I wear a mask and I, try and do my best. I just think this country sacrificed so much for this virus that you know, I want to try and play my part. The biggest takeout for me on this whole thing was if I look back on my behavior, I mean, I, I had a business trip. I quickly decided to do a ski trip, which was probably in retrospect a selfish thing to do. I came back. My mother wanted to fetch me from the airport. And I said, no, but I could have lived with having killed my mother because she fetched me from the airport. Because I went on the ski trip. That's the biggest risk I think we run from our behavior is if you're not responsible, the impact that you can have on other people. I don't know what the answer is, but I, I just think we can't, we can't afford to go back into a lockdown. And if you look back over time, humanity, we, our immune systems adjusted this virus and this, this virus won't go away. It will be here forever now. But from your perspective, even though you can't get sick again or unlikely to get sick again because you have antibodies, you still want to set an example by wearing a mask, which I, I guess many people would think is rather strange. Yeah, I just think that so many people have made massive sacrifices for, for, to, for us to slow this virus down. Now, you know, to go running around and having like, I don't care, I just think is irresponsible. I do. I, I sometimes think I'm a bit of a a mixed bag because I've got very different feelings on this whole thing. But I, I do think we need to try and be as responsible as possible while getting on with our lives. Conscious of the fact that never in the history of my life has have my actions been able to have such a, an impact on other people. You know, if I look at it from my personal experience, I feel that the world has completely overreacted to this. I mean, if I even if I look at my parents, who are in the 70 to 79, who are my, my biggest concern, if my parents were to contract the COVID virus, the mortality rate on 70 to 79-year-olds is, is 6%, 7%. So if, even if my parents contracted this virus, they would be very unlucky to die from it because 93, 94% of people will survive. I mean, I think at my parents' age, driving long distance in the car is probably as great a risk, if not more of a risk to them. I just think that the way to completely shut the world down, to close supply chains, to create poverty, to, to subject 
the poor to, to what they have, job losses. People lose their businesses that, that they've spent their lifetimes building. I don't know if that was the right way to go. I can't say. But, but then on the other hand, I see people – there was a terrible story about that young girl who lost both her parents within the space of a few hours, you know, and that's there's that story. So I'm, I'm sure she's got a very different view on this virus to what I have. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. As the pressure rises on companies like Suntum that are refusing to settle business interruption insurance claims, competitor Outsurance has broken with the norm. Chief Executive Dani Matia told my business colleague Linda van Tilburg that brand and reputation is important to the company and it has started paying out on a potential liability of over 200 million rand. Now, I'm not quite sure exactly, you know, on everyone's approach to it, but certainly our approach from day one, and by that I mean since the lockdown, basically was to pay these claims where our customers had the appropriate extension on their business interruption, which we call tourist attraction loss. So, yes, we, we have been paying those claims uh, since probably April for losses occurring in March and onwards. Can you give us an estimate of what has been paid out so far? Yeah, to date we've paid out just over 40 million rand, probably in the region of 43 million rand. Our maximum exposure is in the region of 220 million rand. Now, the reason why those two numbers differ is because obviously we pay these businesses on a monthly basis as we review their loss of income. So, in some instances, businesses are able to open again and that helps them generate some income, and we take that into account. But we expect our maximum exposure will be 220 million. You mentioned the tourism industry. Does it cover also the hospitality industry? Can you give us a bit of a profile of what these businesses that you've been saving look like? Yeah, no, it, it, it does cover hospitality broadly. The majority of the claims are from restaurants, coffee shops, bars, those sort of bed and breakfast, guest lodges, those sort of businesses, so by far and away the majority. And again, you know, by definition, the fact that it's called the tourist attraction loss means that it is really aimed at the hospitality industry, yes. What the other companies have done and what I've seen in the court case is that they separate COVID-19 from the lockdown. You didn't do that. Yeah, again, uh, Linda, I, I'm not sure exactly of, of each insurer's approach. And, of course, that's their prerogative, uh, how they approach it. Ours was very simple that, you know, our policy wording speaks to infectious disease within a specific radius from the customer, 50 kilometers. So we made two decisions early on from a causation point of view. Our view is that, you know, the virus is the cause of the lockdown. So the proximate cause is the virus. And where those extensions in our policies exist, we therefore think they engage. And secondly, we didn't expect customers to prove to us that there was an infectious disease within that 50-kilometer radius, just because we don't think the burden of proof would be fair in that case. Having said that, of course, you know, if the lockdown wasn't instituted, I think our view is also that it's very likely that there would have been a virus within 50 kilometers of many people. So, again, I can't comment on others simply because policy wordings differ, approaches differ, reinsurance arrangements might differ, but, but that has been our approach, yes. Do you have an idea of how badly businesses are affected by COVID-19? Look, I mean, of course, we all follow the media and, you know, be it, be it more media or social media, you, you see what consumers are saying. And we are also very engaged as a patron sponsor with RASA, which is the Restaurant Association of South Africa. 
And, you know, there's no doubt, I mean, economically, not only for businesses affected by business interruption, but the economy is in a very precarious position. It was before COVID. COVID has obviously exacerbated that. And there's tremendous uncertainty about where it goes. So, you know, I think there's, you know, there's high levels of concern. And unfortunately, I think the economic impact and the worst of it is probably still to come as people's reserves run out, as support from financial institutions may not be as readily available as what it was. So, indeed, I think there's a lot of pain in the system, so to speak. Have you found that people skip payments because of what's going on at the moment? Absolutely. It's something we keep a a close watch on, but we've also assisted our customers by not cancelling the insurance policies for non-payment. Instead, we contact them and try and make other arrangements to see if we can perhaps reduce cover or put other mechanisms in place to keep the basic risk management in place for them. But say I think the impact on consumers from an affordability perspective is probably still to come into the system in the next couple of months, so that remains a, a key watch item for us. We've not seen a, a major shift in that regard, but I, I do think it is something that will probably still grow. This has been episode 58 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights that have been featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or on our app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until Monday, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.